And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Hundreds of people gathered in Northport last weekend for the Penobscot Watershed Conference, which focused on heritage, challenges, and the future of the watershed. WERU volunteer Natalie Springle, host of Coastal Conversations, works for the Maine Sea Grant, one of the conference sponsors. And for those of you who are unable to attend the conference, she recorded the welcoming remarks by Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation, Kurt Spaulding, a regional EPA administrator, and U.S. Representative Shelley Pingree, as well as the keynote presentation by UMaine Marine Sciences Professor Bob Stenick. The day started with an opening ceremony led by Butch Phillips of the Penobscot Nation, which wasn't recorded, but I mention it here because you're going to hear one of the speakers referring to it. So now to the conference. Paul Anderson was the MC. Chief Francis was born and raised on Indian Island, up in the Old Town area, um, home of the Penobscot Nation. He has deep cultural ties to the people, the land, and the river. He's an avid outdoorsman, practicing the traditions of hunting, fishing, for which his family is well known. Um, he's got a long pedigree of leadership both here in Maine and also throughout the nation for his work on behalf of First Nations. So it's my pleasure to have Chief Francis have a few remarks. On behalf of the Penobscot Nation, it truly is an honor to be here today and welcome you all to the Watershed Conference on, again, a subject matter that's near and dear to our heart. This is the first conference that will bring together communities and stakeholders from Penobscot Bay to the Katahdin region. This is important and the Penobscot understands the importance of working together with so many entities, creating partnerships and relationships that bring us all together for a common cause of a future of health and vitality for the watershed. At one time, there were dozens of Penobscot villages up and down the river system, every part of our lives connected to the watershed. After planning, our people would travel to the coast on the river to gather shellfish, sweetgrass, other cultural and sustenance-based items from that region. So simply put, the watershed provided for every aspect of tribal life for over 10,000 years, not just for subsistence and travel, but also is central to the cultural and spiritual identity of our people. Without it, there simply would be no Penobscots. So today we continue to work hard to remain this watershed's caretakers as its first stewards, whether it's fighting for enhanced water quality standards by our extensive efforts in sampling and testing, providing science in this area, or by making sure that our cultural practices and spiritual connection to the river remain intact, creating an approach by the tribe of responsibility for it that make it part of our everyday life. Or well, more visibly recently, our efforts to remain focused on enhancement of the system and the tribe's lead role on the Penobscot River Restoration Project, opening up hundreds of miles of new habitat for sea-run fish and strengthening our ecosystem while living up to the Penobscot philosophy of balance. We're so proud of this project because it balances a multitude of interests, improves when great minds come together, goals can be accomplished for all outcomes. So again, it truly is an honor to be here today, see the diversity of interest in this great system, a watershed rich in culture and history. I think this conference is evidence of the strength of this watershed to bring people together, create partnerships, and most of all friendships that are working to a common goal. The Penobscot also recognizes how much this system means to so many people and have been overwhelmed with the relationships it has helped us create. So on behalf of our nation, we thank you for all you do, your interest in this watershed, and welcome to the conference. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Very nice. Kurt Spalding is a regional administrator for EPA out of Region 1. Since joining EPA leadership in February of 2010, Kurt has been leading a holistic approach to finding environmental solutions in New England. His work has emphasized the importance of community engagement, sustainability, environmental justice, and green economy. Spalding has focused staff efforts on three cross-cutting initiatives, climate change, stormwater management, and community prosperity. Prior to his work with EPA, uh, Kurt had extensive experience in the environmental protection field as an advocate, policy analyst, and administrator, and for almost 20 years he served as executive director of Save the Bay in Rhode Island. 
a nationally recognized 20,000 member environmental advocacy and education organization. And that little state in southern New England, the one that can fit into our bay. <laughs> My pleasure to welcome Kurt. Pleasures of being from Rhode Island. Yeah, uh, we, we refer to Maine sometimes as our Alaska. Not quite that big. Well, thank you all for, for inviting me up today and be part of this. And I, I want to open with a, a, a quick point. If this meeting, a meeting like this, is being held about my being Narragansett, uh, again with a Native American name, it would, we would not open with the same ceremony that you just saw. And I want to congratulate everybody, especially the state of Maine, and how you all work with the tradition and the heritage and the connection with, with the Penobscot people. Uh, it's been my great pleasure during my... I've had the opportunity to serve uh, Gene McCarthy, who's the administrator of EPA, of course, the president for six plus years now as, as regional administrator. That's EPA New England, we cover the New England states. And it's been one of my great pleasures to connect with the tribal nations, the 10 tribal nations that, that are in New England. But I must say the relationship with the Penobscots is a special one. And I want to thank the chief for all that you've done and, and the education I've had the opportunity to have uh, when it comes to these connections, uh, the thousands of years of stewardship that tribes have done for our New England resources. So to so that point in mind, I want to remind you all that the great senator from Rhode Island, Sheldon Whitehouse, has been a leading advocate on climate change with over 118 speeches on the Senate floor. Uh, no other senator has spoken so strongly on climate change and its impact. And what Senator Whitehouse says with every speech, he says there's evidence for everyone to see. It's a matter of measurement, basic, basic measurements. And because of these measurable changes happening in New England, most especially the simple measure of ocean temperature, which you know so well here in Maine, or sea level rise, which you're hearing every week, seems to be accelerating faster than they thought the day before. Uh, for me, climate change is not about belief, it's just a matter of fact. At this point, if it's not accepted as fact in people's minds, uh, we, we need to question the frame of reference they operate on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, the fact of that matter, though, is for most Americans at this point, climate is, is a matter of fact. So I'm very pleased to see today's conference has an entire session devoted to mitigating and coping with climate change. It includes a discussion on CO2 emissions through the Clean Power Plan. Now, the best, place, best laid plans sometimes are thrown off course just a bit, and our Clean Power Plan has indeed been stayed, and it's being reviewed, or will eventually be reviewed. But we feel very strongly that the plan will be upheld. And just Friday, just a couple days ago, yesterday, sorry, I was in Presque Isle on Thursday, drove all the way back to Rhode Island, drove all the way back up here today, and so I'm a little out of sorts. It's coming to me to do that to you. <laughs> just as a side note, I was in Prescott because people were coming together about the St. John's River. It's a little more complicated when the dams are in Canada, not in the United States. But the bottom line is you've set a great example of what people can do for rivers, especially our great rivers in New England. So back to the Clean Power Plan, we feel it's very strongly put together. The Air Administrator was on the phone with us on Friday and talked about that. And when the merits are fully debated, it, it will stand up. But at the same time, we recognize that the courts have spoken and the plan is stayed, and states will move only on a voluntary basis. The good news is some are. But there's a lot of other things to do on climate change, and, and that's not stopping us. The president outlined a climate action plan, and we're continuing to make progress on that plan. Adaptation. Climate adaptation is one of the priorities in that plan, and it's an enormous priority for New England, given our coastal heritage. And it's something we're trying to integrate into, into all our work. Now today I want to demonstrate how we are doing that with examples of innovative and comprehensive solutions on the water challenges we are undertaking in New England. 
hopefully this can inform some of your discussions going forward. So in New England, our picturesque waters make this a very special place we all live in. And I sometimes make the joke, not well received by my colleagues who run regions elsewhere, that I have the great opportunity to drive around New England. Imagine if you were the regional administrator in Atlanta and you had to drive all over Florida, really. So I get to see these beautiful places. I just did that the other day. That's a couple weeks ago. Pretty fun. Uh, but I grew up here just now. And Penobscot Bay is just like the other iconic waters that stretch from north to south. Casco Bay, Lake Champlain, Cape Cod, Narragansett Bay, Great Bay, Long Island Sound. These are incredible resources, but all are struggling with modern problems, mostly associated with our presence here, nutrient overloads, ocean acidification, uh, obviously warming, and rising seas. Now, you're all here because a lot has been accomplished, and a lot has been accomplished on each one of these. I spent most of my career working for the restoration of Narragansett Bay. We actually have dolphins coming into the bay all the way to Providence. Manhattan's swimming up through the area. It's right past this big being caught up off the seawalls in the port. None of that would have happened, but for the work of people like you, and none of what's happened here would have happened, would, would have happened but for the work of, of people of, of you. But we know as much as we gained, it's all at risk. We're threatened by troubles that, that threaten our economies and, and threatening our futures. Restoration of our iconic rivers, protecting aquatic life, improving water quality are goals we all share all over New England. And so it's so encouraging to hear about the successes of this project. With the graduates of fish species like River Heron and Chad coming back up the river, uh, fish uh, over the Milford Dam and by, by the thousands and in waters where Penobscot tribal members can fish for sustenance, something we care very much about. And as you are likely aware, water quality in the Penobscot River has been and will continue to be a major priority for us at EPA as we strive to work with the state of Maine and the Penobscot Nation in setting protective water quality standards for tribal subsistence fishing and aquatic life, which will continue the process of restoration. We have shown that we can restore our great bodies of water here in New England. Boston Harbor is a tremendous national story. From the most toxic harbor in the country in the 1980s to recently recognized as having some of the cleanest urban beaches in the world. We can be proud that in the Charles River, once famous for that famous song about the dirty water in Boston, they still sing it, the Red Sox games. Sooner or later, that generation will move on. I don't think millennials are going to sing that. But it actually helps swimming competitions now, and of course, the rowing competitions in public beaches. I must mention, as I said, my home there against the bay, similar story. I like to read my friends in Boston that we actually were about 10 years ahead of Boston Harbor in, in terms of restoration. And beaches in just south of Providence will soon open. But the water challenges in the future are probably a lot more difficult than the ones we've overcome. Um, you know, we used to be able to do things with a court order that, that would spur one major discharger to clean up their waste. But now to restore Lake Champlain and, and of course Cape Cod, we now need to reduce from thousands of sources, uh, some as small as a farm or a single family house. This requires a vastly different approach, one which actively engages local communities and enlists the public in solving these problems. Now, over the last few years, EPA New England has been looking at this problem, and it was mentioned in my, by, uh, my, my introduction, um, has looking at it much more holistically with our tribal, state, and local partners. How we engage that whole community. Our partnerships on these issues are the glue that will put solutions together, because it's the local places <laughs> that need local solutions that will be effective 
and especially sustainable to local economies. So here are some questions to consider as you go forward. How will communities afford to protect low-lying infrastructure? The federal law is actually forcing them to build. We're actually working with the Passamaquoddy tribe on that very question. And I'm very proud of my deputy who convened uh, federal partners to address the fact that their wastewater plant was at risk because of ocean erosion. Now, we, I rid my friends who talked about all that's been accomplished, but the pipe and treat strategy, pipe and treat strategy that we used is not probably going to work going forward. We need to look at hazard, we look at, need to look at sustainability, we need to look at what might be underwater by the end of the century and how we address that infrastructure challenge. Will flooding force us to make restoring watershed resilience the primary goal of protection? During the 2010 flood in Rhode Island, I've been on the job about three months. The Pawkatuck watershed very much better than the Patuxent watershed because the wetland systems in the Pawkatuck system were preserved, so the water was held back. And the catastrophic flooding that put five feet of water across Route 95 didn't happen in the southern end of Rhode Island versus the middle of Rhode Island, where many of you probably have traveled. It is that natural green infrastructure that saved the southern end of the state. We need to take lessons from this experience, and we need to remember how nature addresses these problems. And, and what our water conservation mission can be if we think about daylighting streams and restoring floodplains. Will we, will we prepare for the eventual future drought and fundamentally rethinking of the idea of water as waste? This rethink is happening at scale in, in, our, in the West, in California and elsewhere. In New England, we're just beginning to think about planning projects to explore how we might recover the nutrients instead of wasting them by essentially transferring them from water to air. Projects in Boston and New Bedford are grounded in a sustainability framework called integrated resource management. From these projects, a future paradigm for protecting and sustainably using water resources may, may well emerge. So as I said, rethinking how we protect water resources and communities in the future is much more than a science and engineering problem as it was probably thought about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or even in the, in the recent past. So as I say to my team, probably way too much, they're going to be sick of me, but I'm gone when the time comes. Uh, let's embrace the complexity of what we've got to do. Let's do the engagement across all the sources and places that we need to speak. And let's get at it with an attitude of, of uh, a listening approach that allows all of us to connect to these issues as we go forward. So I want to thank you and congratulate you for all the work you've done, and I wish you the very best as you vision how the restoration of the Penobscot will continue, not just next year, but thousands of years in the future. So thank you very much. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. These are some of the speakers at last weekend's Penobscot Watershed Conference held in Northport. Up next, we hear from Representative Shelley Pingree. I have a little bit of a cold, so... Excuse me if I start coughing, or hopefully that will mean I abbreviate my remarks. So anyway, um, I'm thrilled to be here today and uh, thrilled that this conference is going on. I think I was at one or more of the earlier ones, so it's a lot of history with many of you in the room, and I know I've had a chance to work together with a lot of you on a variety of issues, so it is always great to see everyone come together. Um, Administrator Spalding, thank you very much for the work that you do. We're really grateful for your dedication to the environment throughout New England, and um, I, on the Interior Appropriations Committee, get to spend a fair amount of time working with you, boss, Gina McCarthy, and um, she is vigilant on these issues, and we really appreciate it. We appreciate the relationship you have with the tribes here in Maine, and the fact that you understand how important their dedication to clean water and a, a healthy environment is. And Chief Francis and everyone from the tribe who um, welcomed us this morning. Thank you for the welcome and thank you to the chief. The chief, um, when we saw each other first thing this morning, I said, you know, it's kind of strange to see you in Maine because I ended up seeing him in Washington quite a bit, which I think is a testament to how hard he works um, on many of the issues that affect the tribe, but frankly have a huge impact on all of us in Maine. And he does a wonderful job also uh, 
the Interior Appropriations Committee has oversight over tribal relations, and it's been a great opportunity for me to dig in a little deeper and understand the particularly complexities for the main tribes and some of the challenges that they face. But I am really grateful for how how hard they have fought to keep the river clean and to um, make sure that their sovereignty is, is understood, and that's not always easy in today's climate. Um, I am very fortunate to uh, actually be a resident in Penobscot Bay. Uh, I woke up this morning on the island of North Haven, got to came back over here on the mail plane with Becky Bardux, who's my neighbor on North Haven, we came together. And what better way to start the day at a Penobscot Bay conference to, to take a bird's eye view of the entire bay, which if you've never had a chance to do it, it gives you a completely different sense of what an important area we all care so deeply about. And certainly those of us in the Penobscot Bay are glad that this is about the entire watershed because our lives are so deeply affected by everything up and down the river and so many critical issues. I feel lucky I've lived there, um, shocking to say, but for 45 years this summer. And um, you know, one of the things you like about living in Maine or particularly in the island communities is that you can say, you know, not much changes very quickly. Uh, when people tell me, oh, I I went there 20 years ago to summer camp or to a wedding or something, and I'm going to come back again, and I'll say, well, you're going to love it. Nothing's changed. Because really, things don't change too fast on the islands. We still, in my community, I think most island communities, we don't take our keys out of our cars. We don't lock our doors. Um, people care deeply about the health of the, of the bay because our um, entire economy is built on tourism or fishing or the things that we know um, whoever you are, have to continue for us to have a healthy livelihood. And sustainability of a community um, is a daily thought in every island community, whether it's will you have enough kids to sustain the school, will there be enough people to buy enough at the local store. It's always about can our community survive. And having that as an underpinning, I know, has been an excellent um, frame of reference for me in working on policy, um, but also makes those places wonderful, wonderful communities to live in, even if occasionally we have our... Um, family rivalries and differences with each other. It's always, in the end, um, a community where, where people care deeply about our longevity and sustainability, and I think that's why everyone is here today. Thinking about, though, this 45 years when almost nothing has changed, and thinking about what a huge impact that this, the biggest watershed in the state has on the economy, the culture, the livelihood of the rest of our state, um, really makes me think about um, how quickly things look like they're about to change in the future. And I think that's why many of you are here today and certainly what keeps me up at night and makes me really worried. Um, as I said, we know this is a critically important region to the rest of our state. Um, and some good things have happened, and we've been talking a little bit about that this morning. Um, the Penobscot River Restoration Project is really a great example of um, so many different entities coming together, removing the dams, and seeing this increase in the fish coming up the river, the Atlantic salmon, um, which we are going to ask Greenland to give us back our salmon, I think. But um, seaborne herring, I mean, we know that this is really important, and if there is a future in our crown fish, it will be because we're able to bring back some of these important species. And of course, the challenges with ground fish are one of the big issues that we all worry about going into the future. But some of these figures and numbers that we hear about today, um, about how quickly things are changing, are, I think, really frightening. Um, the idea that the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of the oceans in the world is perhaps the scariest number I've heard in a really long time. I mean, we all know the water's warming up. I think all of us are very deeply concerned about the migration of the fish. Everyone's seen the charts and knows the lobster fishing is gradually moving north, which is a challenge for the southern communities. And I think once this, um, if, if this continues and we see the shift to northern Maine, it's going to be devastating for many of the communities in Penobscot Bay, whose livelihood is dependent on the fishing industry and people's desire to visit us because of the fishing industry. So we have to take these very seriously. My understanding is that um, the Gulf of Maine Research Institute has already issued a forecast that said there's a 51% chance of an early shed this year, a 48% chance of an extremely early shed. And I'm sure our fishermen will adapt to that. And I know our lobster marketing entities are thinking about how to um, help people better understand what a shedder is and why we in Maine love to eat the shedders and why they're so tasty. But the fact is, this is a big change in the industry, and it's much harder to ship um, a shedding 
officer, and it, it's indicative of some of the things that we have to adapt to and some of the challenges that we're facing. Um, the, the numbers I've heard are uh, lobsters are migrating at a rate of 40 miles per decade. That means in 30 years, they're going to be living in Canada. And as we know with other species of fish, whether it's our salmon in Greenland or our shrimp who have gone somewhere, we can't quite find them right now. But um, you can't get them back. You can't call the Canadians up and say, by the way, those are our lobsters. We want them home again. Um, you know, that's, that's a very, very serious issue. Of course, as we talked about earlier, it's not just about the rising ocean temperatures, it's rising sea levels. And almost all of us live or interact in a community where a tremendous amount of our infrastructure or our community is just based right on the water. And we like it that way, and it's historic. And it, um, it is an important part of our infrastructure and our economy, but the current forecast for a three-foot rise in sea level by the end of the century would have significant impacts on the island of Vinyl Haven. That's 10% of the community underwater. And that could easily, all this could easily be an underestimate when we see how fast these things are changing. I think about many of you who have come through the North Haven thoroughfare um, have probably stopped at Jail Browns, um, a family-owned business that's been there since the late 1800s and subsequent generations of the Brown family. If you know Floyd Brown, you can always go in there, you can fix anything, he can rescue you from any bad situation. Uh, he's quicker than the Coast Guard, and we love the Coast Guard. Um, but, you know, he's just always there. And that family-owned business is the kind of place in our community where our one gas pump is and where on a cold winter day you can go down there anytime and there'll be a group of individuals standing around the wood stove keeping it warm and ready to offer any kind of advice you might possibly need or not need. Right there. Well, that's not the tradition, but it's also already a place that under a, you know, with a storm tide and some of the weather we get, they'll have a little flooding on the floor. They've got some marks on the wall where the highest flood has ever come, or you come down there and sometimes there's sawdust in the wrong place because they just had a flood tide. But three feet of water, that's gone. That's most of our community. That's our ferry terminal. That's so much of the things that we've come to depend on. And... Um, there aren't big pots of federal money that are being set up right now to move communities off the shore. There, there isn't a place to turn in um, an already challenged, a challenged state economy, and certainly our economy, there's nowhere to go when those things happen. And if it happens faster than we think, um, we may well still be here. And if not, our children and grandchildren are going to be really angry at us for not having done something earlier. I, I uh, feel very privilege to be a member of Congress, to have served in the Maine State Legislature, and have so many of these issues that I get a chance to work on from a public policy perspective. And with many of you, I've worked on pieces of legislation, and just two that I haven't. This year, we just recently introduced a bill requiring the federal government to study the effects of ocean acidification, which is also a growing concern and what the economic impact will be on coastal communities in Maine and around the country. We're not the only people who are worried about this. My colleagues on the other coast are as well. Um, but certainly, ocean acidification is another in, in a symptom of climate change. Um, I'm grateful that the state legislature has already been looking into this, but that's one of the places where we're trying to focus some of the resources at a federal level to think about what the impacts could be and how to think ahead. And we're about to reintroduce, thank you to many of you who have worked on this with us for several years, the Working Waterfront Bill. That one directs federal agencies like NOAA and Commerce um, to assess the National Working Waterfronts Toolkit, which is an effort by many people in local and national groups to look again at some of the growing changes in demands to small coastal communities. And I think we all know how critical working waterfronts are, both to the culture and economy, of our state, and sometimes their impact is far greater than what happens in just that community. So we're about to introduce that bill. Um, and, and really, every day as a member of Congress, I think I don't have to tell all of you in the room that um, I, still, I sit with a lot of um, slightly misguided, perhaps, people who still are not convinced that climate change is real, or that the sea level is rising, or that the ocean is getting warmer, and that this is all going to have a huge impact on our economy and all of our lives. Um, but I'm grateful that when I go to Washington, I represent the kind of state where um, we have rooms full of people like this. I mean, to think that this um, conference has gone on for many years, and as these problems have gotten larger, this room has gotten larger. There's 300 people here today, and I know you're all here because you're saying, 
um, this is serious, I want to do something about it, we need to all communicate with each other, and we all need to take many, many more actions. So I feel good when I go to work, but I can solidly feel like I come from a state where the tribes are concerned about this. The fishermen, um, in my district, the fishermen I talk to all the time, they're perhaps fearing climate change more than anybody else. They understand like the most fundamental environmentalists. This is gonna change their livelihoods, their children's livelihoods, their communities, um, and they bring it up to me all the time. And I also think it's nice to come from a state where people just operate from a perspective of common sense. Uh, if you live in Maine and someone tells you that there's gonna be three feet more water in, at the end of the century, you immediately start thinking about what's not gonna be there and what are we gonna do about it, and you already understand that this isn't something that we can just pack up and move a few feet away and have a life that we wanna have. You understand that if the fish are headed north, um, that's gonna have a huge impact on all of us, wherever you live in this state. And I was speaking back to uh, our most recent committee hearing and when uh, actually administrator from the EPA, Gina McCarthy, was in front of us. And um, we frequently get into this discussion in the um, Interior Committee about, as they call it, um, Obama's war on coal. So there's always the Obama's war on coal that um, the, many of the states understandably are concerned about because the number of mining jobs and the number of coal jobs have diminished, and most of it is because of other less expensive energy sources and uh, a real change in the marketplace. But it is always a debate in our committee, and it's usually focused on the EPA and the regulations and the clean air rule, as you were just talking about. But I felt grateful that when that conversation came up a couple of weeks ago, and my colleagues who I have deep respect for, and I feel for them, because we've had a lot of mill closures and we know what it's like when a community loses all their jobs. So I understand how hard it must be in West Virginia or some of these other places to say, when the mine shut down, you know, the jobs are gone. And where do people go? What happens to our high school? We, we know that story all too well. And so I answered them by sympathizing that I, I really can hear, you know, how hard that must be, how hard it is in Madison and so many other communities. But on the other hand, I live in one of those states who's deeply affected by the bad air from coal-fired power plants. And in our state, it's one of the most common reasons that people go to an emergency room because of asthma, because of um, diseases related to be breathing bad air. Childhood asthma is a huge problem in our state and disproportionate. When you look out, you think, this could not be a bad air state. This isn't Los Angeles. We don't, why would we have bad air? But frankly, we have their bad air. And so to say to them, you know, we lose, we, we lose um, jobs every day for people who aren't healthy enough. We lose. Um, work hours, we lose productivity, and frankly, we lose lives, we lose people's health. And in the long run, um, using, having more bad air, using these things are devastating to all of us. So what happens in a coal mine matters to all of us in Maine, and what happens in these big picture issues are ones that we all have to uh, unite around and work hard to make sure we don't leave our children and grandchildren something that um, they they can't live with and that we don't leave our country better off, as the tribe would say, better off than when we came. So I feel grateful to all of you for um, giving me the opportunity to speak today, to um, represent you in Congress if you live south of Lincoln Belt, um, and uh, to all of you for having the uh, willingness to come here on a beautiful main day and put your time and uh, your great knowledge and hard work to tackling some of these problems. So thank you very much. That was Representative Shelley Pangree. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. I'm Amy Brown. We've been listening to some of the welcoming remarks at the 2016 Penobscot Watershed Conference held in Northport last weekend. Up next is the keynote presentation by Professor Bob Stenick of the University of Maine School of Marine Sciences. His research focuses on coastal marine ecosystems. And he refers from time to time to slides, but he describes them well enough that you'll be able to easily follow along. Hey, it's really a great pleasure to be here. Um, at my age, it's a great pleasure to be anywhere. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to just start thinking about the different perspectives that we take to uh, the Penobscot watershed. Um, you have to recall that you know we start with the, uh, the headwaters. Uh, you can look down uh, the river uh, to the uh, outer coast. This is a picture from Vinyl Haven. And, and of course, we have the fishing community. But you know, a, a perspective that I think is underappreciated is this one. 
Now, this is uh, obviously uh, the East Coast of North America. Your eye is drawn to the brilliant lights shining from Long Island. Uh, what you uh, also notice is how those lights sort of disappear. And when you, when you think about um, Maine and you think about the Penobscot watershed, um, you have to realize that this big area of darkness, in fact, is a good part of the Penobscot watershed. It's a remarkable resource, obviously rare in North America and in the United States. You know, the headwaters of the Penobscot, uh, the tributaries are key to this, uh, the largest ecosystem that we have uh, in the state of Maine. So the Penobscot River is the lifeblood for Maine's largest ecosystem. Um, you know, it sustained Maine's first inhabitants. It's fueled the new world's first international economy. It's critical for Maine and has been studied, uh, you know, it really, it's critical for Maine uh, for, 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 for centuries, obviously. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover sort of what was natural as far as we can tell, uh, talk about the peopling of the watershed, the dam problems and more, um, evolution of fishing technology and practices to today, and the challenges now and for tomorrow. So let's, let's start thinking about what was natural. Um, what a lot of people uh, may not realize is that really the, the first people on the, on the coast of Maine, um, uh, the archeologists like to call them the red paint people. They came um, probably about uh, 10,000 years ago. Most of those sites are underwater, but uh, we start getting an archeological record that's about uh, four to 5,000 years ago. These are all sites in the Penobscot area that uh, have um, some interesting uh, Indian middens, but probably uh, the best one of all is the Turner Farm on North Haven. Um, probably a place showing those pretty well. And, um, and this really was studied intensively. It's really one of the best archeological sites in the Western North Atlantic. And what's very cool are the things that come out of that site. Um, there are fish hooks carved out of deer bones that uh, carbon date to 5,000 years ago. That's a cod vertebra that uh, on a centimeter scale, that's a lot bigger than any vertebra in this room. Um, what we know in fact is that uh, we actually had very big fish on the coast of Maine. And uh, when we look through the, the, the fragments of these middens, uh, dating back to uh, 4,500 years ago, we see uh, number one most abundant fragments, cod uh, bones, there's flounder, a number three is sea mink, one extinct in the late 1800s, uh, swordfish, sturgeon, even great white sharks. I have no idea how the native people uh, 4,000 years ago were able to land a great white, but they did. Um, anyway, obviously those folks really love seafood. <laughs> And what's interesting, and I don't want to glaze too many eyeballs here, but there's isotope data. There's ways of looking at the carbon and nitrogen, and, and, and you can actually figure out uh, what the primary diets were back you know, thousands of years ago. And when you look at the uh, isotopic signature of cod and sculpin and flounder, what you find, is, in fact, is it, it's something that seems to reflect a nearshore you know, kelp, seagrass, uh, seaweed kind of carbon base really quite different from deer and bear, which a lot of archeologists at the time thought was, uh, was sustaining our people. And what this is basically telling us is that uh, the earliest people were really being sustained by our, our resources in Penobscot Bay. So the, the roots are very deep, obviously. Uh, and so let's think about the peopling of the watershed, this damn problem, weirs and more. Um, Look, we know iconic species like salmon uh, are, are incredibly important. Atlantic salmon uh, grow up to be good size. They, uh, they actually uh, forage and gather up marine nutrients and they sort of bring them inland. And what's interesting is there's been work done by uh, folks at the University of Maine looking at uh, the contribution of some of these migrations in terms of marine derived nutrients up into the terrestrial system. And what's interesting to me is this idea that you have these marine nutrients and coming in in the form of big salmon, but any of the river running fish uh, up into these waters. And then, uh, then the, the babies are born and they grow up. Um, you know, you've got uh, your par and your smoke. And one of the points being raised by this study is that in fact, where those nutrients are unimpeded, those marine nutrients actually result in larger babies, uh, which is very cool. 
very good because this is a this is an input that it not only affects uh, the salmon, but it affects uh, a lot of the terrestrial organisms, eagle populations, and other things uh, profit from this flowing of nutrients from the ocean up into the, uh, the watershed. And then, of course, you have the outflow of the young going into the ocean. And when I was starting to look at this, I was thinking, gee, you know what that reminds me of? It's sort of like uh, the human health analogy of a circulatory system. So if we start looking at this around, you know, 1600s, other people have studied this, we start looking at the, the blocking of these arteries. And uh, those black dots are, are dams. Now, the, before 1750, we just had a couple in the Penobscot watershed. But if we start taking this from the 1790s, and, and we do the following, we look at these little black dots. By the 1790s, you'll notice that there are more dams uh, along the Penobscot. Well, let's think about that relative to human population density. And let's subdivide this in terms of the upper bay and um, uh, the estuary and Penobscot Bay. And if you put those together, uh, and in 1790, you'll notice really very low population densities. These are a uh, number of people per square kilometer, and scientists always use a kilometer because it sounds more like science. Um, and what you see is that you see this developing of the population by 1800s, and you see the dams uh, showing up uh, 1810, 1820. Populations are growing. They're starting to increase up in the watershed. Um, and uh, as time goes on, we see uh, an incredible number of dams showing up into the Penobscot uh, watershed. And uh, it's really uh, rather remarkable. When you look at this and you start thinking, well, what, it, what I wanted to know is, is there a point of inflection? You know, uh, was there suddenly a period of time when a lot of dams were built and then, and then they all stopped? So what I did is I looked at the rate of dams, the cumulative rate of dams uh, over time. So I have years on the uh, x-axis here and the cumulative number of dams, and it looks like this. Basically, it suggests that for about 200 years, there was about one dam per year. Uh, in this system. And uh, we do see certain species, like salmon, are showing this kind of decline. Now look, salmon are a much more complex species. We've got a lot of things going on. We've got watershed usage. We have, we have uh, climate change. It's all affecting this. But nevertheless, there are other river runners that depend on this kind of free passageway. And, you know, alewives and shad, for example, uh, this is town landings uh, along the Penobscot River and bay, and it shows a very interesting pattern. And I think it may be an, an important one, a little bit instructive to me. For one thing, um, it's not just the total number of dams, it has to do with where they're placed. And the head tide dam, in fact, came in in 1835. It's possible that uh, that actually had a bigger effect than some of the others. But I also wanted to show you uh, this, and this is what uh, our, we have a group working with Jim Wilson trying to look at the historical ecology of the region. And, uh, and a letter that came into the Executive Council of Maine in 1822 said, I, Joseph Butterfield, of a place called Indian Old Town of the County of Penobscot, do testify that ever since the year 1803, fish called salmon, shad, and alewives were abundantly plenty in the Penobscot River. And that does match what we see in terms of the landings. Um, but then he says, until about 1813, after which uh, they have been rapidly decreasing every season, and that seems to show up also. I believe a vast number of destructive weirs uh, were entirely destroying the run of fish in the river, and he finally concludes by saying the Penobscot Indians cannot take sufficient quantities for their families to eat. And uh, this is a, uh, interesting from a whole bunch of perspectives because I hadn't really thought about this weirs, but also after that land, those landings declined, they really haven't, uh, as far as we can tell, come back to the levels that, uh, that they had at one time. Now, for those of you who don't know what weirs are, they are, are ways of trapping fish, uh, and it's commonly used for herring on the outer coast, but used for salmon and shad and alewives. And this is one that's still in, in use in Grand Manan, but this is a, a photograph <laughs> taken uh, at Owl's Head in Rockland of a, of a weir. We have a lot of historical photos from Bucksport, Belfast, Castine, and Rockport showing these weirs. And it's something that we don't think about much because we don't see them today. 
But um, if you just take Penobscot River, lay it down on its side, uh, and look at the map that was created in 1873 of Weirs, and for reference, there's Verona, okay? So here's Verona Island, uh, and this is what the map looks like. And uh, just to highlight these, you know, how any fish could get around Verona Island is beyond, you know, comprehension here. But this is obviously another factor. So in the human health analogy, you know, I mean, okay, it looks like uh, this system could be suffering from cumulative impacts of, of several blocked arteries. We've got dams, we've got weirs, and uh, these are just a few of the points. Uh, and of course, there's the obvious thing, what can you do about that? And we know that the River Restoration Project uh, has this in mind. And uh, this is interesting in terms of what this can do for the river run fish. Um, I think it's too soon to say if the impact, what the impacts are for Penobscot. The other thing that's really interesting is the short-nosed sturgeon. It's a, it's a, a species that's uh, incredibly rare, but um, folks at the university started picking them up and finding them and then tracing their, uh, their movements using acoustic techniques. And this is another river runner. Uh, it, it spawns in fresh water. But what's important here is not just uh, the, the role played within the Penobscot estuary, but the, the Penobscot estuary is really part of a network. And so the sturgeons really need this healthy network going from the Penobscot to the Kennebec, to the Merrimack. And so uh, this is uh, how we might want to be thinking about rivers uh, sort of more holistically as we consider this entire regional ecosystem. Well, you know, uh, I, I know what Shelley was saying about things don't change very much on, uh, uh, on, on islands, but um, if you take the century scale, uh, fishing has evolved quite a bit. And it's worth thinking about the bigger picture, I'm in this case, just looking from the 1800s to 1900 in terms of uh, how landings have changed as you go from the upper reaches of the Penobscot uh, into the estuary, mid-bay, uh, and uh, the lower bay. And if you do that, and you look at this from 1800 to 1900, you see the following. This is all species, total landings. You see them spiking early and then flatlining. You see, uh, as you move down the estuary, you're actually seeing this spike uh, moving down the estuary. And what's interesting is that uh, when you get to the lower bay, you're actually seeing, a, I think, a different dynamic starting in the mid to late 1800s. And that is that the Penobscot fishermen now are fishing farther. This is uh, the fishermen known to have gone from Penobscot Bay to the Scotian Shelf, and of course, George's Bank as well. So we have this ever-increasing fishing capacity, going from sailing vessels to steaming vessels, going to purse seines, and the capacity of what you could do. And on top of that, you've got things like the capacity for refrigeration. You have transportation, and you've got globalized markets. And so the overall effect is, is going to change over time. And just to give you a sense, here is uh, the work done by a fellow named Good, and he published this in the 1800s, and it's really the fishing grounds of Maine from 1830 to 1880. And, uh, and I wanted to point out a couple things. Now, uh, the Turner Farm uh, on North Haven is right there. Uh, this is an, a region I've highlighted in yellow, areas that, uh, that were identified as uh, fishing grounds in 1800s. And notice that the region around uh, Vinyl Haven and, uh, and North Haven, then called the Fox Islands, and Isle of Hope really was not identified in the 1800s as a terribly uh, terrific fishing ground. Well, that was the work of Good. This is the work of Rich. And now what you're seeing are uh, the same four areas, which you could either describe as the, um, the Good fishing grounds described by Rich or the Rich fishing grounds described by Good. <laughs> But, but notice that you're still not getting anything over in the, in the Penobscot region. And then um, Ted Ames started doing his work. And Ted, I have to apologize. I'm using an old figure of yours uh, rather than your, your much nicer, newer figures. But um, uh, really looking at it, he interviewed a bunch of fishermen who, uh, who recalled fishing grounds in the 1930s and 1940s. And now it wasn't those good fishing grounds. It was actually the Penobscot area that they were targeting. And what's really different here then what you had before is that they are now targeting spawning aggregation sites. And they could do that because they had the technology in terms of uh, their capacity to, uh, to use 
seine nets and to target these aggregations and also to refrigerate spawn cod. And it's been said it was really after the 1930s that cod and haddock stocks in Penobscot Bay collapsed. So it's probably uh, coincident with this technological evolution. So bigger boats uh, and better gear often have an impact. And what you end up seeing is uh, a really interesting increase of, of uh, landings as fishing gear improves to the 1930s. And then, in fact, you see this decline as purse stains, refrigeration, and improved transportation go to about World War II. And after that, it's a fundamentally different sort of fishery, much greater landings, much bigger boats going much farther away. Things like redfish are not coming primarily from Penobscot Bay. They're coming from uh, the, the area around there. So um, if we fast forward to today and we correct for inflation, in the 1880s, the val total value of the Penobscot Bay resources were uh, something less than 20 million. Recently, the uh, annual amount is uh, uh, greater than 300 million, and that's corrected for inflation. What's interesting is if you look at the number of species and the distribution of those resources in the 1880s and you compare them to today, you look at something like lobsters. 24% of the, of the value in 1880 came from lobsters. 92% comes from lobsters today. And so while lobstering uh, technology has improved, uh, the stocks have not obviously declined. And this is well known. A uh, front page article in the New York Times from Vinyl Haven in 2001 talking about lobster landings are booming. And then in, in 2012, that warm year, early shed, more lobsters than we know what to do with. And we've heard a little bit about that already. Both of those stories in the New York Times coming from Penobscot Bay. What we have is, in fact, uh, a, just a remarkable thing if you look at both value and landings of a, of a resource that's booming. Uh, there is no species on the planet that I know that's been targeted for 150 years and doing better today than ever before. But we are assuming great risk. Is it a good idea to be dependent, so dependent on a single species? And, uh, and there's concern with that. Um, and I'm going to follow up on that in terms of the challenges now and moving forward, because uh, obviously we have climate change. You've heard about that. It's been making a lot of news. This is an article that came out some years ago in Science, uh, identifying the areas uh, that are most at risk in terms of uh, temperature warming, and uh, our region is one of them. If you just simply look at the data in terms of the Booth Bay uh, sea surface temperature from 1905, you see this is going up. And uh, whether it's a, if it's going up at a, at a remarkably fast pace, which some people think it is or not, it's very clearly increasing with all the consequences that we just heard about. In terms of lobsters, it's very interesting because there are temperatures that are too cold for lobsters to settle in, and then there's uh, a threshold where lobsters, babies that are floating around, the larvae will settle to the seafloor, but then there's water that's too warm uh, for, for lobsters, both for the larvae and, and, and also for the adults. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And so one of the good things, and one of the reasons why I think uh, stocks have been increasing, especially in eastern Maine, is that you know if you're in a colder region, colder year, uh, and then you get warming, it actually opens up more of the seafloor for settlement. So the settlement area increases, and lobster stocks seem to be responding well to that. But the trouble is we've got these regions that in 2008 were too cold and some 2008 were too warm, but, um, but we have basically a sweet spot in Maine, and that has been wonderful, and that's been fueling this remarkable increase. But we are very dependent on lobsters. These are uh, all the species that the Department of Marine Resources keeps track of, going back to 1950, uh, all in different colors. But lobsters are this one on top. So lobsters are king. You see that there was a period of time when the EEZ was opened up that uh, our, our fisheries uh, expanded, and we had many more species making it into markets. But here's where we are today. And looking at this in a, in a slightly different way, if you look at just simply the diversity of things that we market, as the black line and the percentage that are lobsters as the blue line, uh, it shows the same thing of this increased diversity to a point 
And then you see the diversity dropping down and we're ending up with really a very lucrative monoculture. And this is putting us at really great risk. We see lobster traps as far as the eye can see, and I worry about whether we are dealing with a socioeconomic time bomb, and this is the kind of thing that I hope meetings like this and working with the community, we can work around. When we look further to the south, we saw that lobster landings in Long Island Sound were increasing until 1998, which was the warmest year on the planet at the time. We've actually had several since. But in any case, on that year, shell disease broke out and lobster populations declined by 80%. Now, uh, the temperatures that we have in Maine now and, and are projected in the near future, we're not expecting that kind of temperature. Um, but we have seen warmer than average year, 2012-2013, we've seen shell disease increase. Uh, as we already heard, we're seeing the lobsters moving north and east, and there's a time when they may not be a big part of our system. If you look at the uh, long record they hold at Woods Hole, and you take roughly 20 degrees C as a, uh, a very stressful temperature for lobsters, you see the period of time of recent that has gone to the point where it's become a hot hostile for lobsters, and southern New England has really uh, had a, a severe collapse in their coastal lobster fishery. So we think about other species that are iconic. We know that the first people lived on codfish, but uh, folks have studied the anticipated increase of temperature in various regions, including the Georges Bank, and what that's going to do to cod. And if you look at just the dots that are red and black, where the cod stocks are projected just based on temperature to be decreasing or collapsing, with a one degree change, you'll see uh, that red line. With a two degree, uh, you see this line moving farther to the north. And these are actually very realistic numbers that we're looking at in terms of increases in temperature in the Gulf of Maine. So we might anticipate a future where cod uh, are really gonna have a hard time making it, um, which uh, is unfortunate since we're still trying to rebuild that stock. Well, the fact is that not only uh, are species moving north and east from the Gulf of Maine, but there's also evidence that they're moving into the Gulf of Maine. And this is really interesting, speaks to the bigger dynamic that we have going on here. This is a plots of red hake. Red hake were virtually absent in the 1970s, but you'll notice that the red hake have been increasing significantly in the Gulf of Maine. And these northern ships include things like black sea bass, terrific economic potential, Many lobstermen I talked to have seen the black sea bass. And this is an interesting species because it's one that's found in the mid-Atlantic but uh, was found in highest abundances really in, uh, in southern New England and now are showing up along the coast of Maine. There are many more species coming and it's uh, not just fish but also things, the reports are increasing of blue crabs and other species like this. My point is that we're talking about a system that's really dynamic. Uh, and it's changing all the time. So when we think about the Penobscot River as, a, as a, you know, the largest ecosystem that we have, uh, there are a couple of conclusions that we can draw from this so far. The watershed has supported uh, people for thousands of years, and people have changed the watershed and are now working to restore it. Natural resources are, are really rapidly changing in very dynamic ways, and these were, are first observed by stakeholders in the community. The challenge for today and tomorrow are to find ways of managing this dynamic ecosystem sustainably. And, um, and I think that this is where it has to be a group effort, and we all have to work with it, and, you know, work among ourselves, and I'm really happy to be part of that, that team effort. So yes, I barely covered the tip of this iceberg. Um, it's a very complex ecosystem. I touched on warming, but there's other difficult and important problems such as pollution, sea level rise, ocean acidification, land use practices. These all are problems that are ever present. And with that, I thank you all. That was Professor Bob Stenick of University of Maine School of Marine Sciences speaking at the 2016 Penobscot Watershed Conference in Northport last weekend. That audio was recorded by Natalie Springle and lightly edited for length by me, your host, Amy Brown. This is Maine Currents Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. You can catch us here on WERU every Wednesday afternoon at 4, and you can email news ideas and suggestions to news at weru.org. 
Stay tuned. After a couple of messages, we're going to have the weather, then Democracy Now! And after Democracy Now!, we start back up with music, starting with Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg. He's in the building getting ready, so stick around for that here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 